Everybody? How you doing? Good to see you. It's an exciting time. There's a lot of excitement in Colorado today. This little local team that are playing today. I love basketball, so I'm excited. Great to be with you, and we are not in a series. We're not in a sermon series right now. And so the team said to me, preach on whatever you like. How many know that that's kind of dangerous? So I want to preach on this message, Faith in the Fog. And we're going to look at John chapter 21, John chapter 21 together. So let me read to you. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, who was that? John. Okay, that's good. Who wrote this? Just saying. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It was one of the biggest surprises of my life. It happened when I was about 12, about 25 years ago now. Okay. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, lived uh, in a very old house. It was rumored that the rafters of the roof were a thousand years old, made from an abandoned ship. 
Seven miles from her house was a, a coastal town with a pretty ugly beach, scattered pebbles and smelly seaweed, a dilapidated pier that had been ravaged by a storm. And every summer I'd go and visit my grandmother and spend the summer there, and I'd go to the beach, and I made a friend there. His name was John, and we goofed around and went boating and fishing and got up to some mischief, and we'd spend the summer, and then I'd go back to London, and we would have no contact for the rest of the year, and then the summer would come again, and we'd meet up, and it was a, a, we had some great times. I, I still remember the day when eagerly I showed up to go to John's house beginning of the summer, and I turned around the bend in the road where he lived, and his house was gone. The house was gone. There was just tarmac, the, just a blank space where his house used to be. They decided to build a parking lot, and so they demolished John's house, and he'd moved away, and you know what? I have not seen or heard of him ever since. I don't know whether he's alive or dead. But when I go back to that place, as I often do, if I can explain it like this, I feel, it's sort of weird, I feel a sense of time claustrophobia. Do you know what I mean by that? Where I'm locked into the now, but I, and, and everything there is kind of the same. The beach is still there, but John isn't. And it feels a little sad. I wonder if the disciples felt like that when they went back to Galilee. They went to this beach. This is a photograph of the beach at Tabgah. It's the most likely candidate. It's probably the only place where this event could have happened. A couple of miles from Capernaum where Peter lived in an extended household there. And there they are by the Lake of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, uh, as it's often called, 680 feet below sea level. So wild storms come through there. And they go to this familiar place, but Jesus is not there. It's not that he's not around at all. They've, they've met the risen Jesus in Jerusalem, but now they're home, but they're home alone without him. One writer says, nostalgia is the suffering caused by an unappeased yearning to return. I wonder whether they felt that. He's not here. And they were confused as well. Please don't think that the resurrection resolved every issue for the disciples. He's alive. Hooray, let's change the world. No, it wasn't like that. When you look at the descriptors in the New Testament that describe the disciples' emotional condition, it's obvious that they'd been hit by an emotional tsunami. Here are some of the descriptors. They were startled. They were frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. They were troubled. They were doubting. They needed to have their minds open to understand. They were afraid but filled with joy. They worshipped but some doubted. They were trembling, bewildered, and afraid. They did not believe. They stubbornly refused to believe. They were, they were overjoyed. And I'm not sure they expected to meet Jesus that early morning. For one thing, it's Galilee. The last time they saw Jesus, 68 miles away, in Jerusalem, not only that, but these are Jewish boys, and Jewish boys had this theological understanding that Messiah would center his activities around Jerusalem, the big city, not backwater Galilee. Not only that, but it's nighttime. John, in his gospel, uses darkness and light like an artist with a color palette 
to not only describe the episode, but to portray the mood. So Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John's gospel, and Judas goes away from Jesus at night. There is a, a sense of brooding here. And then the way that Jesus shows up is so unusual. It's so ordinary. If I had been given responsibility for the choreography of the resurrection, it would have been different. I'd have had 64,000 angels tap dancing on the beach in yellow Doc Martins. I would have had, I'd have had the London Philharmonic Orchestra and a magnificent choir playing and singing the Hallelujah Chorus prophetically because it hadn't been written at that point. I would have had navy jets swooping overhead with he is alive in red, yellow, and blue smoke. Cecil B. DeMille meets Steven Spielberg. <laughs> who's, that, who's that dude on the beach? I'm not being irreverent when I say this, it would have been helpful for Jesus after his resurrection to have one of those little stick-on badges you wear at conferences. <laughs> Hi, Jesus. <laughs> and it's all so ordinary. He's cooking breakfast. He either went shopping or fishing that morning. I don't think he stood by the Sea of Galilee and just said, Tilapia, come forth. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of it is that it is all so unspectacular. And then there's Peter. Peter, he denied Jesus. He cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Couldn't even defend Jesus properly. I don't think he was aiming for the guy's ear, do you? Oh, I think I'll give him a minor surgery. Messed up. He's had one resurrection, post-resurrection meeting with Jesus. We read about that. We know only that it happened on Easter day and it was private. Nothing more do we know. So there's unresolved issues for Peter. I think these guys felt pretty bad, fairly low, bewildered. Isn't it boring when as a Christian you feel rough? I think sometimes we give the impression with sermons and sometimes worship songs that if you're a Christian, you're gonna be endlessly thrilled. You're going to be on the edge of ecstasy all the time because that's normal. That is not normal. When I became a Christian back in 1734, <laughs> we used to sing songs back then that gave the impression that we were endlessly ecstatic all of the time. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I am H-A-P-P-Y. I know I am. I'm sure I am. I am H-A-P-P-Y. Another great theological classic was, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. No, it isn't any trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. If you pack up all your troubles, then they'll vanish like a bubble. If you only take the trouble just to S-M-I-L-E. It's enough to make you V-O-M-I-T. <laughs> the normal Christian life is not to go around like a grinaholic all the time. The normal Christian life is Jesus, and he got upset and sad and weary and thirsty and fed up, frustrated, lonely. That's normal. Get out of the idea that you have to walk around with a big grin, armed and dangerous with that tambourine all the time. Jesus cooked them breakfast. Why did he cook them breakfast? The theologians jumped through all kinds of hoops. You know, one reason that Jesus cooked them breakfast, this is really profound, write this down. 
One reason Jesus cooked them breakfast is this. They were hungry. <laughs> I know, it's deep. I remind you of that because sometimes we forget that we have bodies. And we forget that our bodies, our physical, affects our emotional and our spiritual. And we are rebuking the 73,000 demons that are camping in our bathroom. When in fact we just need a good night's sleep and an adjustment to the diet. And in my case, I'm just permanently jet-lagged and confused. He cooked them breakfast. But there was, there was some significance in the breakfast too. Let's have a look at this. First of all, if you're following along in the bulletin, first of all, there's a call to purpose rather than mere survival in this breakfast. There's a call to purpose rather than mere survival. Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, have you ever noticed, brothers and sisters, how much fish talk there is in this story? I'm going fishing, says Jesus. We'll go fishing, says Peter. We'll go fishing with you, say the disciples. We, uh, we are told that they don't catch any fish. Jesus shows up, asks for a fishing update. Jesus gives them some fishing instructions because they haven't caught anything. We are told that they catch fish. We are told the nets don't break. We are told how many fish they catch. And then it's time for breakfast. And guess what's on the menu? Fish. There's a lot of fish in the story. Then, by the fireside, Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? Now, the standard approach to that is that Jesus was saying to Peter, Do you love me more than these disciples love me? I'm not sure about that. Peter had already tried that one. I'll never deny you, never. That lasted less than 24 hours. I'm not sure. It, what I'm about to say is a suggestion, not a definitive statement, okay? But there are commentators and theologians who are asking this same question. Is it possible that Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me more than you love fish? Think about it. Fisherman Peter would have a quiet life. Fisherman Peter wouldn't have to worry about prison or persecution or preaching or the troubles of the church. He wouldn't have to be concerned with all that stuff. All he'd have to do was get up in the morning, go fishing, come home. Nothing on TV for another couple of thousand years. Another early night, get up the next day, go fishing. Quiet life, survival, easy. Sometimes I could be tempted by that. Sometimes I don't want to be worried about the troubles of the world and the issues of eternity. I just want to just live. Sometimes I don't want a purpose-driven life. I don't want purpose and I don't want driven. I just want a life. Anybody identify with this? But you need to understand, we need to understand that survival is never going to work for us. If we have been kissed by a vision of the kingdom of God, going to work to get the money to buy the food to give us the strength, to go to work to get the money to buy the food to give us the strength. That's never going to work. You're messed up wonderfully forever. Have we settled into survival? Did you notice that someone even wrote down how many fish they caught? What kind of saddo, what kind of sad person is sitting on the beach counting fish with the resurrected Jesus right there? 89, 90, 91, 92, 
The commentators go ballistic on this. One commentator says 153 fish, 153 is the number of nations in the world at that time. The fish are a missiological statement concerning the preaching of the gospel. Another one says 153 fish, the number of different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at that time. Another one says 153, a triangular number that would have impressed ancient Pythagorean philosophers. Yeah, right, like Jesus said, I know what I'll do, I'll give them 153 fish, for this will impress ancient Pythagorean philosophers. I believe that after 2,000 years of speculation right here at Timberline Church, I am able to reveal unto you the reason why we are told there were 153 fish. Brace yourselves. It's because that's how many they caught. <laughs> no, it's heavy. Is it possible that they caught the catch of their life? to help them realize that the catch of their life would never be enough. Sir, I don't care how full the net gets, how high you climb. Real living is found not in survival or superficial success. It's found in knowing God and living for his purposes. This 2014, we're weeks into it now. Are we going to survive or are we going to live? There's an invitation to purpose. Secondly, there's an offer of grace for our greatest regrets. An offer of grace for our greatest regrets. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. If you study the New Testament, you'll discover that John always understands before Peter and Peter always takes action before John. It's just the way it is. So who is it that figures out that it's Jesus on the beach? It's John, of course. It is the Lord. Splash. Where did it go? Hmm. He's gone. That's classic Peter. Puts his coat on before going for a swim, which is a bit Monty Python-ish, but there you go. And Peter, typical Peter, impetuous, wonderful, enthusiastic Peter, he, he runs up onto, beach, onto the beach, and there is a fire. There is a fire. A difficult word to say. Oh. When's the last time you see a fire in John's gospel? It's John 20. Peter is denying Jesus while warming his hands at a fire. Now the enthusiastic Peter runs up the beach, and there is Jesus, and there's a fire. And there are hands moving across the flames, cooking breakfast. They have holes in them. What's going on? Is Jesus tormenting Peter with his failure? I don't think so. I think that Jesus is doing some shame surgery on Peter. Jesus is inviting Peter to sit down by the fire, which was a symbol, a reminder of his failure, and notwithstanding his failure, not ignoring it, not marginalizing it, he's inviting Peter to say, I love you, because shame silences our worship. Shame makes us back away into the shadows. Jesus doesn't say to us, what you did that you're so ashamed of, it doesn't matter. He never says that. 
He doesn't marginalize it. He doesn't minimalize it. He doesn't say, well, I just forgot it. It slipped my mind. God doesn't forget our sins. Rather, he says, I will remember them no more. That's different. Way more intentional. He invites us to sit by the fire. The reality, yes, we did that. I love you, Jesus. What have you dragged into 2014 from your past that you dragged into 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, millennium? And it's time now to sit down with him, not pretend it didn't happen, but in the reality of your history and mine, to say, I love you. There is an invitation, an offer of grace for our greatest regrets. Thirdly, there's a command to focus and avoid distractions. A command to focus and avoid distractions. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I used to be irritated with John, keeping on saying that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, did he have a badge or something? He loves me more than you. I am no longer irritated with John. I'm sure he's mightily relieved. I think that John realized that more important than his own name was the truth that Jesus loved him greatly. Peter has been given a prophetic word, a prophetic utterance from Jesus. Jesus prophesied three times over Peter. He prophesied that he'd be sifted like wheat because Satan was after him, but Jesus had prayed for him that his faith may not fail. Prophecy number one. Prophecy number two, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And prophecy number three, you're going to be martyred. Stop right there. Imagine that. Jesus telling you the kind of death you're going to die. I've wondered about this. If God spoke to me and said, Lucas, would you like to know when and how you're going to die? I think, I don't know whether you're with me in this. I, I, I think I'd say, you know what? I'd rather not know that. Peter was now going to live on prophetic death row for the rest of his life. Jesus has told him, this is up ahead. This is on the horizon for you. And then John shows up because they've been walking the beach together, Jesus and Peter. And Peter does what we so often do. Well, what about him? You've got a corker of a prophecy for him? Because we want life to be fair. And so what Jesus does is he gives Peter a shoulder massage. And he said, bless your little heart. I know this is difficult, but John is going to be exiled to Patmos. That's going to be tough. And they're going to try and boil him alive, but he'll survive. So he's going to have some tough stuff too. No. Jesus says, what's that to you? Follow me. First of all, it's an invitation to trust. More about that in a moment, but... I mean, you'd have questions, wouldn't you? You're going to be martyred. Okay, um, so when? Will it hurt? How soon is it going to be? Shall I carry on with the diet, or is there no point? 
See, what we do is we allow questions to get under our skin. Questions are generally good, but sometimes we focus on things that don't really matter and they, they, they kind of unsettle us. And we think that God is equally concerned about the things that irritate us, you know. They didn't sing my favorite song this morning. It was too loud, it was too soft, it's too hot in here, it's too cold in here. They didn't use my version of the Bible. Someone is sitting in my chair, my seat, the one that Jesus gave me when I first came to Timberline. <laughs> and there's loads of stuff that can get under our skin. I mean, I love being part of Timberline, but it's full of irritating people like me. We have a gift as human beings of irritating each other. If you've been part of Timberline for more than six months and nothing about it has irritated you yet, you are probably clinically dead. And what happens is we, we get all that going on inside us uh, and then it, it hijacks our hope and it robs us of our joy. And then Jesus says to us, what's that to you? Follow me. One of the prayers that I'm trying to pray at the moment is, Lord, show me the things that are my concern and show me the things that aren't. Because I think that in the answer to that prayer is peace. Let's shrug off distraction. Fourthly and finally, there's a repeat of calling that was offered before. A repeat of calling that was offered before. Jesus said, you must follow me. Has anyone spotted the fact that John 21 is a replay of something that happened three years earlier that's described in Luke chapter 5? That's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he first met Peter, there's a miraculous catch of fish, just like John 21, and there's an invitation, follow me. But now, Peter's been around the block for three years, and now everything's different. And now there's martyrdom up ahead. Jesus rebuilds the scenery of Peter's calling, gives him a prophetic update, and then basically says, you still up for this? Are you still going to follow me? This was the area where Peter had walked on water. Now let me ask you a question. Has anyone here ever walked on water? Anyone? Let me, let me ask you this. Has anyone ever tried? Come on, just slip up your hand if you have tried. There is an unusual amount of people in this service who obviously are not as concerned about the Broncos as others in previous services and who have attempted to walk on water. Fear not, for I too have attempted this. I was staying at a hotel with Kay, my wife, and I was preaching at a church somewhere, and I noticed the swimming pool was empty. Not the pool, that would have been really difficult, but the pool was full. There were no people there. Let's get the facts straight. So I thought, I think I'll try this walking on water thing. So I put my swimsuit on because faith without works is dead. <laughs> Prayed for a few seconds. You know. And there I am in my swimsuit and cowboy boots. Get that picture out of your head right now. <laughs> and I stepped onto the surface of the water, and behold, I did sink. But it looks like a lot of fun. 
Two options are available for you, Peter, walking on water to get to Jesus, or John 21, walking through water to get to Jesus. Check one. Now Peter has to walk through the water. There are days, there are seasons in your life where you feel like you're walking on water, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, your prayers are being answered, this is living. And there are other days when you're wading through and the swell is around your hips and the current seems to threaten to sweep you away. But Jesus is there in both episodes, walking on it, walking through it. He's there. And as Peter waded through the water, he was about to have to really trust. You know what I've found when I'm on a beach? Something weird happens to me on beaches. Beaches are places of transformation. Pebbles are unsettled by that incoming rush of water. Even the biggest rocks ultimately succumb. It's a place of change, constant change. It's also a place of mystery because I look out when I'm standing on a beach and I look out and there's nothing to obstruct my view. I think I see everything. No, no tower block, no, no truck to get in the way. I see it all as far as the earth's curvature will allow and I see nothing. I don't see the teeming plankton, the jellyfish, the coral, the shark, the cod. I see it all, but I see nothing. And sometimes that's the way it is with faith. You're standing on a beach and you have a glimpse of the greatness and the vastness there's so much under the surface where you just have to say, God, help me to trust you. Here is Peter. He's been called. Now he's been updated. And the question comes to him. It's a simple question and answering it is quite complex. Jesus says, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 17, 40 years ago. I'm 58 this year. I gave my life to him. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have kids. He's a brand new, brand new Christian, no church background. 40 years later, I've seen the best and worst of church. I've been to 10,000 Christian meetings and more. I've seen friends supernaturally healed by the power of God and I've seen friends die even as the prayer group prayed. Back then at 17 I said or I heard uh, an invitation. Follow me? I said yeah. Love to. Now I'm 57. Here an invitation for this season. Follow me. And I'd like to say, 
Let's pray together. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, because you cook breakfast for your weary friends. We're grateful because you build fires not to torment and shame us, but to allow us to sit and face the reality of our history and our current struggles and still mumble hopefully that we love you. We pray today, Lord, for those of us who are addicted to shame. Our heads hang low and our hearts match. I pray that in these seconds, Lord, somehow by an incredible supernatural work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that you will allow us to sit by the fire and give you that stuff and then offer love to you. I also pray, Lord, especially for those who are walking through water right now. And some of us have been followers of yours for quite a while. Some of us are new. But Lord, our sense is that this is a moment for us to say, I will follow you, Jesus, by your grace, with your help in this season of my life. Let's just keep our heads bowed for a moment. In a minute or two, I want you to know that I'm going to give an opportunity for anybody here who is not currently a follower of Jesus to make a decision to become one. You may not understand everything, join the crowd. But for some of us, this is a pivotal turning point because you are wanting to decide that you don't want to just carry on fishing by yourself. That you want to live as you were created to live with God, for his purposes, with his help, forgiven. The barriers between us and God have been removed. Jesus died to make it happen. He's alive. And so in a minute or two, I'm going to give an opportunity for anybody here who wants to start that journey to do that. But before we do that, I want to talk to my fellow Christians here. Because you see, some of us, this Sunday is about saying to Jesus, in this season, with all that I now know, with the pressures that I currently face, I want to follow you, Lord. You're not becoming a Christian again, but you have an opportunity, I have an opportunity to reaffirm that in this season of our lives, we are followers of his. And I'd like to just open this up and invite you to do something. If that's where you're at and you want to make this a moment with God, I want to invite you to do something physically. You, you might want to kneel where you are. Throughout this weekend, people have been kneeling in the aisles and kneeling where they sit. You might want to move across to the aisle or, or where you're seated, just quietly kneel. You might want to stand just as a way of saying, 
I want to mark this moment, Lord. You might want to just open a hand in front of you. But if you want to respond to this and pledge your following him in this season, I invite you to do something now to express that. So be released. You can kneel. You can stand. You can open a hand. You can lift your hand to him. But just do something in this season with all that I now know. I want to follow you. Before we pray, we've also come to that moment where I want to invite anyone here who wants to become a follower of Jesus to make that choice. If you would like to become one of his friends and followers, be decisive about it. I'm going to ask you to do something very simple, and that is wherever you are, standing, sitting, wherever you are, would you, if that's what you'd like, you're wanting to become a Christian, would you just slip up your hand right now for a moment so I can see it? And then just hold it there for a second and then put it down again. Do that now, if you would. You're beginning this journey. That's great. That's wonderful. I am excited for you. Right where you're sitting, standing, kneeling, just tell God from your heart that you want him to take charge now. Go ahead. Just whisper in your heart your prayer. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't need impressive words. Just say, Jesus, be my Lord. Be my friend. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Take charge. Renew me into the new creature that I can become in Christ. I want you to know as well, if you're making that decision, that at the end of the service, our prayer team will be at the front here in a few minutes from now. We've got materials we'd love to give you. They're free. Come and get one of those packages that will help you in your journey. Lord, you've heard the whispers and the cries of our hearts. We pray for every person in this room who is responding to you in whatever way. We ask you to seal their choices and decisions and pledges by your spirit finally we pray especially for those who are walking through the water right now strengthen them for the journey we pray we agree together in Jesus name everybody said great you are, how great is your power, your love, your grace. I ask you, Lord, to send each one of us out of this place with a sense in our hearts of your power and grace for this season. We give you praise because walking on water or through it, you are there and you will be always. Cement that Amen. God bless you. Prayer team are here. Uh, we would love to pray with you if we may. And I haven't said this at the end of any other service, but I am going to just say this as a benediction. Go.
Broncos. Oh, yeah. Prayer team are here. Have a great weekend. God bless you.